0: Thanks for dropping by. And uh, as usual, I am Josh. And uh, this is Dharma Punk's New York weekly Tuesday night remote version thereof. And all of my work as a Buddhist pastor is entirely supported by donations supported entirely by whatever individuals feel comfortable providing and if you'd like to do so the paypal is on the dharmapunksnyc.com website as well as it's on the podcast site and the venmo is dharmapunks with an xnyc so thanks for that that's my spiel new year's eve There'll be a talk and a Buddhist ceremony as we near midnight. We'll start probably around 10 or 10.30. And people can, of course, as it's remote, drop in whenever you like. So if you'd like to join us uh, then, that would be welcome. And then there'll be an in-person Dharma Punks event on January 9th. That will be on a Sunday in Manhattan. So those of you who are interested, just keep uh, checking the Dharma Punks NYC website or the Facebook page, and you'll be informed. Tonight's talk is about unmet needs in regards to self-actualization and growth. Hopefully it's helpful. So our first developmental requisite in life is to establish what is called a secure base with others, caregivers who are or meet the foundations of secure attachment. And these foundations could be summarized, as we know from the work of countless attachment theorists from uh, Dan Brown, Omri Gilead, John Bowlby, uh, Mary Main, etc. Uh, there are characteristics of being secure, and those are having caregivers that are reliably available, caregivers that can discern whatever emotional state we're in, anticipate our needs, are soothing and appreciative. So if we get frequently enough these needs met these needs for attention and soothing and appreciation and warmth and uh, touch and all that it creates a resilient self that allows us as infants to explore the world and engage with others and to withstand setbacks and scary situations And while we're born with a core need or a core drive to attach, the nature of how these needs are met are developed externally by our caregivers. We don't exactly choose how our caregivers meet our needs for soothing, how they soothe us, how they show appreciation, how they meet our needs how they uh, label our emotions and all that is different in every case so we could think of this as our first set of needs are developed by others and internalized into us so that's outside in when needs are discerned and met by other people rather than discerned by ourselves and then sought in the world, which is inside out. When other people essentially inform us what our needs are, that's outside in. And we get these outside-in in, in uh, needs met through early interactions with others. And they create durable dispositions known as attachment styles, and uh, other psychologists call them schemas, yet other psychologists call internal working models. They essentially are these unconscious, global expectations we have of others, what type of people we gravitate towards for love, how secure we feel, how confident we feel, and whether we are uh, relaxed in our lives or whether we have a predisposition for anxiety or predisposition for depression and so forth so very important getting these core needs met early on they're extremely influential shape the right hemisphere of the brain and leave lasting imprints Now the following task is to develop financial resources so we can sustain ourselves in a world where there's very few safety nets. And we also need to locate individuals in our adult life, such as romantic partners, friends, mentors, or colleagues. It doesn't have to be romantic partners it could be friends it doesn't have to be friends it could be mentors it could be colleagues but people who continue to provide us with secure attachment and emotion regulation which means people we can disclose our feeling they'll listen and they'll help us frame our experience in a way that is uh not needlessly self-critical or self-judgmental people that help us withstand setbacks and help inform us that we're not alone uh, so we have a strong need to belong which if we we know from the work of Lieberman and so many others eisenberg etc that is grounded in a very core region of the cingulate called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex So this is hardwired, this need to belong and attach with others. So how we go about these needs is a combination of outside-in, because we're still sometimes stumbling across people who help define love for us by how they act with us. But sometimes inside-out, we discern a need for uh, space or support or collaboration. And when we discern these needs, we find people who will meet them. So once we have these uh, fundamental requisites met, uh, the final task is to achieve what the great psychologist, Abraham Maslow, called um, self-actualization, the desire to become all that we are capable of being to reach our highest potential. And this according to subsequent um, uh, psychologists, uh, especially positive psychologists and Buddhist psychologists and um, a whole wide array of uh, clinical work, self-actualization is the highest need. Self-actualized, Individuals choose growth. They are exploratory, they seek adventure and novelty. They try out new endeavors, they explore new ideas, and they're energized by challenges, not overwhelmed by them. Uh, Self-actualized individuals are creatively expressive. They can convey their internal states, whatever they're feeling internally, sad, anxious, lonely, uh, a sense of longing, whatever, through arts, you know, painting, drawing, music, or through crafts, uh, through, uh, you know, handcrafts, design, pottery, gardening, whatever, or they can, uh, through writing and journaling, they can express what they're experiencing internally. Self-actualized individuals are confident. They are not afraid of making a fool of themselves. They don't rely on approval from others. If they want to learn how to ice skate, they don't care. If they'll fall a lot, or if they want to start playing the piano in their 70s, they'll do that. They're not intimidated by difficulties or by the, by the um, sense that others will laugh at them. When I was in my uh, middle 40s, I decided it was time that I learned to skateboard. And I went out and I bought a skateboard and I decided I was going to teach myself. And I'd go out on the streets of Brooklyn and kids would whiz by me and laugh. At the, they would be the age of ten, and I'd be this forty-five-year-old guy stumbling over the side of my board, uh, basically going slower than people walking on the sidewalks, and still, I had a blast because I was acting out that urge to be self, uh, to embrace new capabilities, regardless of. How it looked to others Um, self-actualized people are open-minded they're comfortable listening to new ideas and viewpoints that are different from theirs they do not have uh, very strongly held beliefs that they are not willing to uh, listen to being challenged at times they enjoy uh, especially when it comes to uh, new opportunities for growth, whether creative or uh, interpersonally, they're interested. And Maslow and so many others noted that when people fail to self-actualize, choose growth, choose constantly to explore, uh new places new endeavors new capabilities when people fail to become creative in their lives there's a sense of meaninglessness an emptiness a hollowness a a sense that one sure has might have positive affiliations with others but that sense of having achieved or or uh grown in all the ways we could grow has not been met and that leads to a sense of a life not fully realized so the desire to self-actualize is anything but selfish it's to achieve our highest potential requires that we develop confidence and that we're collaborative and that we're less competitive uh And that helps us not only work towards our own sense of well-being, but also to the well-being of others, as Maslow noted, when people are self-actualized, they're more willing than others to turn towards problems in the world that need to be addressed, certainly. Uh, the climate catastrophe looming, the rise of the far right and all that. People who are self-actualized are not sitting around thinking about limiting self-referential thoughts. They are actively embracing, well, what can I do to grow and to explore and to turn towards this new, these new, uh, these looming challenges that uh, I could play a role in. So again, these are developed from the inside out. We sense uh, uh, a sense of either a lack of meaning or a state of longing or a hollowness in our heart center or a melancholy feeling of being separated from a desired experience. And then we turn to that experience and we embrace it so for me uh it literally was one day i was sitting around and i saw uh, on a show somebody playing claw hammer banjo and i thought wow that looks really fun and there was a sense of melancholy that i never had learned to play the saxophone like i wanted i can play the Piano, but I didn't learn the sax so I thought damn it I'm gonna learn something new so I bought a claw hammer banjo and I took the lessons and now I can play claw hammer banjo which to everyone's horror probably but uh, that's an example uh, this sense of yearning and longing to develop new skills or capabilities or this pining for a uh, a life more fulfilling there's words for it in so many different languages i when we were in portugal i heard the word "saudades," which in portuguese means a sad yearning for a place or uh, a connection or for uh, an experience that is yet to be attained and i know that in german it's c'ensouct, uh, which something means like an inconsolable wistfulness for something we haven't achieved. And uh, in French, and here's where the horror show begins, because when I am asked to pronounce something in French, uh, the French immediately uh, roll their eyes and flee. Languissante. Uh, longuissante, which means something like uh, a languid yearning or melancholy, longuissante. And I've just lost all the French-speaking people in the audience with that one. But uh, in any case, um, all of our emotional affective states point towards, in many ways, unmet needs. For example, Lingering resentments indicate we've set to fail good boundaries in our life. When we experience fear, um, it's an indication that we don't feel secure in relationships or situations in our life. And so a persistent longing, a persistent sense of melancholy or wistfulness when we watch someone do something uh, and a sense of of wishing that we could have developed that skill, that effective state points towards an unmet need for growth, for self-actualization. Seeing others who are growing, if we feel a sense of melancholy, it indicates an unmet need. So this is, uh, I think, in many ways why, why while so much of social media is harmful, sitting around, seeing images of other people posting preposterous preposterous images of their lives, uh, you know, create the uh, illusion that everybody spends their entire life on the beach or doing yoga and looking great. Uh, but um, there is, there can be one benefit, which is if we look through these social media feeds which I actually don't because I find it to be a waste of time. But if you did and you see images of somebody doing something and it creates that sense of wistful melancholy, wishing, oh, I would like to do that too. Well, that's actually pointing us in a direction of growth. And rather than uh, then immediately launch into uh, a, rebrand- a rebounding self-referential series of thoughts about, well, I'll never be able to do that. I would never be able to afford that. I'd never be able to um, develop that skill. Um, It's worth asking ourselves, well, how could I go about exploring that as a possibility? I don't have to do it to the exact same degree as that other person. But if I look at someone scuba diving, and I, it creates a sense of yearning. How could I go about getting that experience for myself? Now, obviously, this could come across as classist if we see things that literally we can't. But hopefully, we'll see enough endeavors on uh, as we look around the world that create a sense of uh, longing that is attainable, whatever our socioeconomic status is. Now, problems arise when we, as a matter of course, discredit our longings, distrust, if we distrust our impulses, um, or if we are so reliant on coping by being accepted by others that we've developed this habit or routine of disowning whatever yearning to be creative or growth as it arises this can be tragic it can actually lead to such a a a sense of a limited expression in life and a sense of a life just being a kind of rote languishing moving through days without the real growth that animates us Tragically, in cultures that enshrine careerism and financial validation and the myth of the genius, yearnings to sing, dance, draw, paint, uh, write, can be stifled if achieving a financial reward isn't realistic for us but that doesn't mean we should stop that the chances of becoming a movie star are astronomically slim if we have a yearning to act that's something that should be embraced it should be pursued by taking a acting class or an improv class it shouldn't be uh tossed aside because the opportunities for turning it into something that's financially sustaining uh isn't feasible it's important to be willing to move towards that which is at first might even seem unreasonable um one of my favorite uh activities was when I went uh, traveled a couple of decades ago to maybe 25 years ago to England and I was uh, venturing around and I go in to various pubs and entire families would be there and they'd be singing along to whatever songs were played on the jukebox generally at that time it was it was always a song by Oasis. I don't know how Oasis, one band, could take over the entire British uh, culture, but they seem to have, and so you'd have these entire families, kids, parents, grandparents, and they'd all be singing these Oasis songs at the top of their voices, and very few people had good voices. It didn't matter. Everybody would sing along with this confidence and this sense of permission, and in the U.S., that the only time people sing aloud is maybe during the national anthem at sporting events or when they're at a concert but to simply sing along robustly without any fear in america is considered to be uncouth. you know we're supposed to only sing if we have really good voices and it's totally stifling in my own life um when I started teaching in 2005, uh, I remember uh, I was giving for a long while talks pretty much identical to any other run-of-the-mill Buddhist teacher. I would yet to find and actualize my own in any way, my own potential uh, and explore growth in the areas where that were important to me and So I I heard, not I didn't hear, I read a book by Austin, Zen Brain Reflections. He's a neuroscientist who's a Buddhist, and he started in these chapters uh, showing the neurobiological underpinnings of each um, meditative and spiritual state. He'd sort of talk about the neural wirings that went into samadhi and or you know and other states of ease and i was fascinated and i thought damn i wish i could do that and this immediate story popped up well you don't get to do that i mean you studied psychology that was your academic uh, milieu but but only neuropsychologists get to talk about neuropsychology because in America we have this fixation or fetishizing of that only if you have a a certain degree of academic credentials that you should be allowed to participate. And, you know, when it comes to science, I do believe that in most cases we should let scientists speak there's far too many people who discredit science in this country but at the same time if we have a longing to to study and learn about and talk about neuroscience I think that was something that was very exciting to me. So I went for it. I started reading the books of Ledoux and Damasio, Ramachandran Chandran and um, uh, Alan Shore and Dan Siegel and uh, Susan Blackmore and all these just started, just started working my way through. And I really developed this love for it. And I just started talking about it in my talks and it was one of and then with attachment theory the same i became familiar with it in 2009 2010 studied it for a couple years and just started talking about it and integrating it into my talks and and that was part of my growth not listening to those self-limiting uh self-referential thoughts that persistently say i don't have the right to explore or or move towards something that's exciting if we don't go for these un, if we don't notice these unmet needs and pursue them uh we'll compensate them through excessive self-reliance we'll try to compensate this hollow sense of having not um sought out that which is exciting for us, we'll try to compensate with financial security or career advancement or reputation concerns, or we'll compensate by fixating on our physical appearance or whatever, because our true needs have become too frightening to speak aloud. So we look for ways to sublimate those needs and achieve them through far more hollow endeavors. And that leads very often to excessive workaholism, people pleasing, and just fixation on things that don't bring a sense of growth and fulfillment. And when these strategies fail, then the emptiness can be so unpleasant that we'll seek addictive, soothing, uh, dopamine hijacking endeavors that are that can numb us to the fact that we don't feel we fully embraced life. We might wind up excessively on Tinder or or Amazon or uh, seek out alcohol or uh, whatever uh, as a or Netflix as a way to sublimate again or just look for any way to not turn our attention towards that melancholy feeling of there's things I haven't done with my life that I really yearn to experience. Um, And it's in in my work and counseling, I found that uh, individuals who have insecure attachment, who are prone to preoccupation and fixation with unavailable individuals often use romantic fixation and drama as a way to distract themselves from all of the unmet growth opportunities in their life, for all of the ways they haven't embraced and fully sought out their potential in different creative or um, collaborative endeavors. So we should pay attention When anything we witness activates a sense of melancholy, longing, or wistfulness, these feelings can be our north stars, can point us in the direction of where growth is still possible and meaning is still achievable. Uh, A key is, as the Buddha taught, is putting aside what he called both Atava Upadana and Sakaya Ditti. These limiting, self-referential thoughts that basically say, I'm not capable, that I don't get to, that that's not realistic. Uh, It's so important to be able to give ourselves permission to make a fool of ourselves or just not be good at something because... Learning something new is always a recipe for being bad at the beginning. Every musical instrument I've learned to play, and I I can even play the accordion, uh, he said threateningly. Uh, But every instrument I've learned to play, there's a long period called I suck at this. And this requires endless patience and confidence to move through the I suck at this stage until you get to the stage where you go, okay, I don't suck anymore. I'm, at least I can play a tune now. And we move through those stages. I love uh, Malcolm Gladwell's observation of the genius myth. We all are beholden to this idea that some people are born Mozarts and are writing uh, advanced compositions uh, by the age of three or four and that if we're not like that, we should just give up. And Gladwell noted, in fact, that pretty much all expertise simply comes through repetitive endeavor what he called something like doing something for 10,000 hours. I'm not sure if it's literally 10,000 hours, but just the, just giving ourselves the permission to day in and day out, do something simply for the growth, not for any desire to achieve financial reward or recognition. I love to research talks that I never give at Dharma Punks. I actually, For every talk i give there's a talk that i've researched or looked into and just done without any intention of ever giving it just because it's on a subject matter that interests me and i draw lots and lots of drawings on uh an ipad at times that i never show anyone and they're i mean are they any good no but uh are they fun and creative yes Maslow, Freud, and Winnicott noted that playfulness is essential to developing self-fulfillment, a reflection on its spontaneity and open-mindedness. Play helps us pursue these divergent and original ideas. So it's important that we set aside time to be spontaneous, unlike impulsivity spontaneity has an intention to it it's for and the intention is always for growth and for creativity without any competitiveness whatsoever most importantly Buddhism offers us the use of guided imagery as a way to help us both discern unmet needs and actualize them, the confidence and the capability. So in guided imagery, we might imagine being taken on a journey to some place without any rules, limits, social expectations. And the work of the Buddhist psychologist Dan Brown and so many other uh, Buddhists use um, and also positive psychologists that use future self visualizations wherein we imagine ourselves five or ten years into the future and in that state we imagine we are confident we've developed new capabilities and creative outlets and we imagine what they would what this future self would look like and especially how would this future self feel and then we transfer this wisdom to ourselves as a way to inspire and also to point us in, again, the direction where growth is feasible in our life. So that said, I'm now going to lead us in a meditation that is geared towards discerning some of the unmet needs and uh, what skills and tools would be useful to help guide us in those uh, to fulfill those needs and requisites so thank you for listening i hope tonight's talk was uh, inspiring in some way or at least worth your attention and now what i'm going to do is ask you to find a relaxing comfortable seated position while I take some much needed water ah. and allow yourself to be as comfortable and relaxed so don't sit forward make sure that you feel well balanced and that you your back and buttocks feel securely rested and that your legs are not needlessly tense and that uh, our arms are hanging lifelessly and that our um, in our face there's no excessive clenching especially in the jaw and uh encouraging the eyes to settle it's long been my experience that when my eyes stop moving about behind the closed eyelids that there's a um, ease that settles in where the intrusiveness of thoughts subsides And just bringing our attention away from any, dislodging it for any thoughts at this point about the past, about things that have happened or might happen, and just Return your thoughts to present sensations, feelings in the body, sounds from around you, contact sensations, aromas, anything that is generated by present moment events or stimuli, we're not, using this time to at least at this moment to get whisked away so if you find yourself now and then which is all normal and natural and Predictable, when you find your mind having drifted away, lodged with uh, lingering concerns, unresolved issues in life, resentments or frustrations or concerns, just note that there's plenty of time to give to those thoughts and concerns, but this is the one time in the day where you get to Both relax and not torture ourselves with those concerns that this is our time where we get to just experience being alive from a place of both gratitude and curiosity. A good place to start is either find the sensations associated with breathing, noting the sensations of expansion and release in the front of the body, or perhaps the flow of air entering the nostrils. Or we could ground ourselves by just listening to the sounds that are occurring in each succeeding moment without visualizing what is the origination of these sounds. Or just paying attention to what we're feeling Feelings are very often indicated by both states of attention. Do we feel, does our mind feel jumpy or settled or sluggish, bright? Do we feel distant from the world or is there a sense of anticipation? lack of motivation and also how do we feel in our body does the stomach feel tight or released are the shoulders clenched or released is the face inclined to a smile or a clenched frown or a neutral expression How do the corners of the eyes express themselves? They very often indicate our core affective states. Sensations in the eyes, the corner of the eyes. So whatever you use as a anchor, as we might call it, anchoring us, grounding us into the present moment, just keep returning to it. And uh, if you wander away, that's, again, natural and OK. Just when you catch, when you awake from that virtual reality that imagined memory or concern just return to your anchor and try to reward yourself each time you return with a very long rewarding full in-breath and long rewarding out-breath if you like visualize a place where you feel really safe as part of your presence, just a simple image. Making your internal experience more comfortable. So for the second part of this practice, we're going to be using a visualization approach. And it's important to just try without any uh, self-criticism, If it's difficult to visualize, just use very simple language that might create some of the same emotional associations as a visualization practice. So in this practice, imagine a very slow-moving stream that's flowing across twists and uh, bends and the stumps of uh, trees and rocks places where the stream is deeper and places where it's shallow the water is rippling off the side of The rocks. When there are drops in the terrain, the stream gets louder. A rustling sound. And imagine, if you will, a leaf that's dropping into the stream and is floating with the stream, not getting stuck, flowing effortlessly through the tree branches and rocks and pebbles and This leaf is just flowing effortlessly into the beyond. Imagine you could ride behind this leaf, your consciousness, into the future, to a world where there's no limits. a world constructed in your imagination of... That's more hospitable, perhaps, than this one. And in this visualization, you encounter an older, more confident version of yourself where there's no sense of insecurity that's been left behind. And this future incarnation has been able to explore and seek out new experiences and gravitated towards new skills or endeavors without any reservation, without any sense of limitation. And just what would that future self be doing? that you yet, as of yet, haven't given yourself permission or found a way to develop and grow. What newly developed capabilities would this future version of yourself have achieved? And don't put any limits on your imagination. You could imagine this self, this version of You in the future, engaging with different people in different ways. The self is welcoming and open-minded. Just learn from whatever our imagination allows, what uh, areas for growth, fulfillment is revealed, if any. And lastly, just imagine this more confident, Older, accomplished sense of self turning towards you, and what would it want you to know? If this self could, if this accomplished, confident, resilient version of yourself could transfer what it feels to you, how would it feel to grow in these ways? So allow the visualization to subside, and just take a moment to just note if there's anything we want to take from that practice. And whenever you're ready, just as slow as you like, open your eyes and just give yourself time to look around and reorient yourself.